Welcome to At Your Leisure, the podcast for Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. Thanks so much for joining us. This week, how a memorable chord was made by a constellation of talents. It's never too late to learn music, although it might be too late for some miscreants in Arizona, and the composer who put America into music. But first... Tough year for the Washington Wizards basketball team. They've lost 23 games, won just four. Their best player has been out with a bad knee, and this week, they couldn't even wear their regular blue road uniforms. The Cleveland Cavaliers sent a special emissary to Washington to ask the Wizards to wear their white home uniforms so that the Cavs could wear their blue travel uniforms at home. Why? Were their road uniforms still at the cleaners? Were they stolen by unscrupulous souvenir hunters? No! The Cavaliers wanted to wear their blue uniforms so that they would match the special edition Nike shoes worn by their biggest star, LeBron James. Shoes must have helped, too. Mr. James scored 18 points, and the Cavaliers won 89-82. Tomorrow, the Cavaliers will ask the Miami Heat to play with their feet stuffed into waste cans. That jangly opening chord in the Beatles' A Hard Day's Night is certainly one of the most recognizable pop music. Sort of sounds like a guitarist telling his bandmates, Hey, we're doing a song here, so listen up. But a math professor in Canada looked into just how the Beatles produced that sound back in 1964, before there were synthesizers and studio electronics like they have today. So to take us through this Beatles mathematical mystery tour, we've called on our math guy, Keith Devlin. He joins us from the studios of Stanford University. Thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Scott. Good to speak to you again. And and nice to talk to you. Uh, Look, we know that music has math, but other than the tempo or number of verses, where's the math? sounds themselves are very mathematical things. And that was the secret to, to unraveling this particular mystery of this sound. And as you said, it's it's obviously guitar-like, but if you listen closely, it's not like any guitar that anyone's really ever heard played live. And so... Well, then, let, let, let's credit the mathematician who got involved in this investigation, Jason Brown at Dalhousie University. Mm-hmm. And what Brown did was he took some mathematics uh, that's fundamental to modern musical theory and to modern modern musical technology, in fact. That was mathematics invented at the, in the late 18th, early 19th, 19th century by a French mathematician called Joseph Fourier. And Fourier showed how you can analyse any kind of waves. In fact, Fourier was studying heat dissipation waves, but let's continue to talk in terms of sound waves. Sound waves come in different kinds. The simplest kind is the kind of sound you'll get when you sound a pure note, for example, with a tuning fork. Mm. And that's a beautifully symmetrical, simple wave that we call a sine wave. That's sine spelt S-I-N-E. A sine wave, beautiful hills and valleys that go on and on smoothly. At the other end of the spectrum, as it were, you've got the kind of sound wave caused by conversation or or, or a typical musical instrument. What Fourier showed, and it's an incredibly remarkable result, take a sound wave, no matter how complicated, you can decompose it into individual sine waves, these simple sine waves, that are superimposed to give that. What Jason Brown did, it's known as Fourier analysis, he took the recording of this Beatles opening chord from A Hard Day's Night. On a computer, he didn't have to write the software, you can now get the software off the shelf, was able to analyse that sound wave, and this took him a long time, and it turns out that... He first of all thought, well, you know, George Harrison had a 12-string guitar, maybe it's that. No, you can't produce those same, that same spectrum of sine waves with a 12-string guitar. Maybe the other Beatles came in with their guitars. No, that doesn't work either. Eventually, he figured out that what must have been happening was George Martin, the producer, at the same time, hit the piano keyboard. 
So that opening chord ah. isn't a pure guitar. There's a piano on there as well. And it was that mixture of guitars and piano that gives it that rather unique sound. Keith, I salute the scholarship uh, involved, but would, wouldn't it have been possible to get this, you know, settled in just two minutes by asking Sir Paul McCartney, how did you guys do it? You know, you'd think that, but in fact, the, 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 interestingly enough, the thing that Jason Brown, this mathematician, is now trying is there is actually some dispute between, well, it was a historical dispute between Lennon and McCartney. Lennon, of course, can no longer contribute to that. But there's a famous song that was recorded a year after Hard Day's Night on the Rubber Soul album called In My Life. There are places I remember And ever since that was recorded, there's been this dispute as to who wrote that. John Lennon claimed that he wrote the whole thing, except for a musical bridge that, that, that McCartney eventually wrote. McCartney has always claimed, no, he actually wrote the, the music for that as well. Jason Brown, he's now analysing this particular song and all of the other Beatles' music in order to see if he can figure it out. In other words, what he was trying to do is, by analysing... Lots of Beatles songs. He wants to see if he can find a sort of a, an audio fingerprint, a sound printing, if you like, of songs that were written by, by Lennon and songs that were written by McCartney. If he can find some mathematical pattern in the waveforms that distinguishes their two composing styles, then he'll be able to look at that and see which pattern in my life fits. Weekend Edition's math guy, Keith Devlin. Thanks so much. Oh, my pleasure, Scott, and season's greetings to you. It's been a hard day's night And I've been working like a dog It's been a hard day's night I should be sleeping like a log But when I get home to you I find the things that you do Will make me feel alright You know I work all day To get your money to buy a thing And it's worth it just to hear you If you've ever had the urge to make music but never had lessons as a child or quit before you could learn, don't despair. Most professional musicians started out when they were young, but neuroscientists and music teachers alike say that it's never too late. As it turns out, the biggest hurdles are not stiffening hands or an aging brain. The totally fabulous Bridget McCarthy explains why. For adults, the urge to play an instrument is often awakened by a great piece of music. For filmmaker David Murdoch, it was a tune called George's Dilemma. I was probably about 25, and I got really interested in a trumpet player named Clifford Brown. And the more I listened to him, the more I thought, well, maybe, maybe I could play this. So I bought a trumpet, and I started teaching myself how to play. He was living in a tenement building on 109th Street in New York City. It was hard for me because 
to really play well, you have to cut loose and blow. So I would do things like blow into the pillow or go into the closet and blow into my clothes. But once in a while, I would really just practice loudly. One day I came home from work and I found that my door had been totally demolished. The door frame was splintered and the door was practically ripped off the hinges. So Murdoch called the cops. This policeman answered the phone and, uh, and I said, my apartment's been broken into. And he said, what'd they get? And I said, well, they didn't get much. But the thing I really, I'm really upset about is they took my trumpet. And he says, oh, play the trumpet, huh? I'm like, yeah. Been playing long? I'm like, well, you know, a few months. Teaching myself. He goes, oh, teaching yourself, huh? Probably one of the neighbors. And that, Murdoch says, was the whole investigation. He never got another trumpet. He figured that was his last chance to learn it. A lot of people believe that the brain isn't very plastic after you reach puberty. Norman Weinberger is a neuroscientist at University of California, Irvine. In fact, the brain maintains its ability to change, that's plasticity, to take in new information and organize it with old information and do new things uh, throughout lifespan. Now, is it as easy to learn something when you're 65 as it is when you're 5? The answer is no. But can you do it? Yes. For an adult beginner, it can sometimes feel like trying to learn Arabic and ice skating at the same time. Think about it. When you're hunched over the piano keys or bowing a violin, you're using your muscles and most of your senses. And your brain's working really hard. You're reading the notes on the page, counting out the rhythm, trying to keep a steady beat, and make it sound like music. That's why, unlike language, there's no single music center in the brain. There are lots of them. When brain scans have been done, actually in musicians, you find the enormity of the areas of the brain that are actually being activated. Children are growing new brain cells all the time. So when they're learning music, some of those brain cells are devoted to playing their instrument. Adults, on the other hand, have to work with the brain cells they already have and create new connections or synapses between them. Ability is, is so low, I think, on the list of what's required. Scott Hawkins is a piano teacher in Silver Spring, Maryland. He says for his adult students, attitude is everything, especially patience. I think often adults come in with these exorbitant, perhaps unrealistic goals about what they want to achieve at the piano and the amount of time they want to achieve this at the piano. We want to skip steps one, two, three, four, five, and be at six. And unlike children, no one's forcing them to practice. So they never get around to it. But adults have advantages, too. They can see and hear things in the music that completely escape children. David Conrad is one of Scott Hawkins' students. He's been taking lessons for several years. When learning a new piece, he spends hours analyzing the music before he sits down to play it. He wants to understand the chords and the rhythm and the structure of the piece to figure out what the composer is trying to say. started working on a Scriabin prelude. And one of the things that I have to do when I approach this is I have to be very patient with myself. 
David Conrad and his son Simon started piano lessons together when Simon was eight years old. David wanted his son to see him struggle, but he wasn't quite prepared for the fear. I played in church one time where I almost fell face forward into the keyboard. What happened? My eyes went blurry. It was like looking through the windshield before the wipers go on. Things like that will happen to me when I'm playing for other people. And it used to happen when playing for Scott, which is totally ridiculous, right? I'm learning from Scott. It took me several years to get over that. Scott Hawkins says fear of failure is a big issue for his adult students. We don't want to be seen as incompetent or, or struggling with a task. Because we're so competent in so many areas of our life, we do so many things so well. To start with something that we don't do well is, I think, is a real challenge. Still, for those who are willing to practice and settle for something less than virtuosity, there are real payoffs. Playing music is great mental exercise and can keep brain cells alive that would otherwise wither and die. David and Simon Conrad have had their musical setbacks over the years, but they haven't quit. Simon, who's now 16, still takes lessons occasionally. And a few months ago, he started teaching himself the saxophone. His dad learned some jazz chords, so now, when Simon needs a break from his homework, they play duets. It may be hard and humbling, but to play music with someone you love or pursue a lifelong goal can be infinitely rewarding. For NPR News, I'm Bridget McCarthy. Art is a luxury item. Just no way around that. Many artists are worried that during this recession, people just won't buy. NPR's Allison Brass reports on a Denver artist who insists that he's found the secret to weathering the financial crisis. Bob Raglan survives by being a tough, can-do kind of man. I get up every day and give my art career the best that I can give it. I may not be the best artist, but I give my art life the best effort. He wears a button that reads non-starving artist because he got tired of people always asking him what else he does to make money. I said, I don't do anything else. I said, my whole life is about art. I instruct it, I make the artwork, I read about it, I eat and sleep and breathe it all the time, and I said it can be done. Raglan is in his 60s, and for the last 40 years, he's worked solely as an artist. How does he do it? He's a disciplined and creative businessman. He markets himself to anyone who will listen. His work is respected, but affordable. He lets people buy his art in installments. And he doesn't show in galleries. He says he can sell his art a lot better and faster than any art gallery can. I've never had anybody wake up one day and say, geez, we're out of Raglan's. We better go get some. <laughs> that never happened. And Raglan has worked to cut his overhead. He paid off his mortgage years ago, in one afternoon, by announcing that if people came over with $300 in their pockets, they could choose any two pieces of his work. We're in his home, which is also his studio. We're going to go upstairs to the second level. Books, okay. boxes, and paintings are crammed four feet high in every room. There you go. I got stuff hanging on the door and all that. And I'm going to turn a light on here if I can. Oops. Wait, Bob, what's this, the Artist Survival Handbook? 
Raglan put together a pamphlet 20 years ago giving tips on what to do to survive as an artist. He wrote short paragraphs about the importance of handing out business cards, collecting cardboard, bartering, and understanding taxes. He flips to find his definition of recession. People will spend money no matter how hard times are. And that was my whole thing about recessions, I think. Recessions. My, oh, here it is. People buy less, but they buy better. He means that people tend to invest in one piece of art that will hold its value instead of buying cheaper pieces that may not. Bob Raglan's art can sell for high prices. His art is in the collection of the Kirkland Museum of Fine and Decorative Art in Denver. Three of his life-size found object sculptures stand in the Kirkland Garden, and his oils, watercolors, and charcoals are sprinkled throughout the sprawling museum. Hugh Grant is the director of the Kirkland Museum and picks up Raglan's painting, of a shack. In this one, it's a very small watercolor, but it looks very wide open and spacious. And there's kind of black birds flying around, and there's this gray sky with just traces of red and orange sunset. The painting is a good example of his style. He takes a humble object or scene and turns it into a dazzling piece. And Raglan writes on the back of all of his paintings. Again, Hugh Grant. He says, for instance, I always liked old buildings and shacks. They have a history. I painted this from memory, testing my ability to work big in watercolor. So he is constantly testing and reinventing himself, which you need to do if you're a really fine artist. For Raglan, part of being an artist is teaching. He teaches art at a technical high school in Denver. And I'm going to make your foot go that way, okay? You're wide there. Okay. Raglan shows Esmeralda Oriostiki how to draw a real-looking leg. Before she took his class, she didn't know it was possible to make a living as an artist. Being an artist doesn't mean you're going to like be poor or anything. It just means like you got to find the right way to work. The way to work is what she's learned from Raglan. you got to spend half your time creating art and half your time marketing it. Raglan says he learns to be a better businessman and artist every day. And he never listens to art critics. Rejection has made me everything I am. I just eat rejection and a sandwich and it makes me stronger. You know, tough times never last, but tough people do. And I'm in the latter. During this recession, Raglan is holding what he calls shoebox art fairs, selling small pieces for less than $100. Allison Bryce, NPR News. It can't be a composer whose name has been more often characterized as quintessentially American than Aaron Copland. That's from Copland's ballet, Rodeo. But the list goes on. Fanfare for the Common Man, Appalachian Spring, Billy the Kid... Marin Alsop, music director of the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra, has just released a CD of Aaron Copland's music on Noxos. And in April, she will conduct Copland's Symphony No. 3 with the BSO. Marin Alsop is back with us in our studios. Thanks very much for being with us. Great to be here, Scott. Thanks. So how does a kid from Brooklyn, uh, the son of Russian-Jewish immigrants, become considered the, I'll use the phrase again, you can't avoid it, the quintessentially American composer? Yeah, isn't that isn't that amazing? I I just I picture you know this kid in the in the apartment in Brooklyn, thinking I wonder what America's really like, yeah. <laughs> and uh, you know somehow he's able to conjure up this image of big sky openness, you know 
the majesty of landscape, and he does it through very defined compositional um, techniques. I'm thinking fanfare for the common man. He uses big open intervals, and they're called actually perfect intervals, perfect fourths, perfect fifths, and they're intervals that are quite empty. And I don't mean that in an emotional sense, but they just, they have a lot of space. Where does Copland fit into the, the great music figures of the 20th century, or, or perhaps of all time? I think he's right up there. Um, the thing that I really want to point out for people, though, is that the Copland we're talking about, you know, the sort of quintessential American sound, is not the full Copland. Yeah. You know, Copland was an incredibly diverse composer. He wrote serial music, 12-tone, atonal music, which is also spectacular. Um, he wrote music that was very angular and dissonant. Um, he wrote songs. He wrote music for film. He wrote music for all kinds of occasion. You know, he, he wrote the first opera conceived for television. So this was a guy who was extraordinarily versatile. And I think we think of him, even though it's a wonderful view of him, I think it's somewhat one-dimensional. You're conducting the Third Symphony in the spring. Yeah, this is one of my favorite pieces of all time. And, you know, it's what I, one of my party pieces. It's so American, you know, as Copeland is, but at the same time, it's an extremely sophisticated piece. And what happened was um, when he got the commission to write this Third Symphony, he went back a couple years to his fanfare for The Common Man, which he had written for Cincinnati Symphony. And he takes this three-minute fanfare and he manages to dissect it and turn it upside down and inside out. And, and by really sort of looking at it under a microscope and taking it apart, he's able to use that small amount of material to create a 40-minute symphony, which is spectacular. And the fanfare finally comes in, at sort of the payoff of the whole piece, um, at the last movement. accurately say that's the fanfare the, for the common man but you know people respond to it oh it's from the Olympics or yeah. you know they have this sort of they play it uh, before the luge response. championships or something <laughs> now now well but 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 I I wonder if because we hear it so much do we sometimes miss appreciating it's how remarkable well piece you, of music is. you know I think you're right in that way um and that's what's so incredible about this third symphony um it's the unexpected appearance of the fanfare, and yet the whole first three movements have been preparing us for it. You know, that's another um, important aspect of Copeland, his simplicity, his devotion to simplicity, but not um, 
not simple-minded. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. very uh, very sophisticated simplicity. At the beginning of this symphony, he takes that opening interval of the fanfare and he turns it upside down and he gives it to the violins quietly. So, it's virtually unrecognizable. Um, but this starts setting the stage mm-hmm. so that even if you're not a trained musician, it, there's sort of this organic acceptance of all the material during the first 30 minutes of the piece. about these other uh, symphonies because I, I gather you've recorded these with the Bournemouth Symphony, your your other job, yes, uh, on on Naxos. And why are they not nearly as well known as the third? Well, I think the element of the, the having the fanfare for the common man is is very very appealing about the third symphony. Also, the third symphony is a major full scale work. You know, it's uh, it, it was compared at the time to the works of of Mahler. Even mm-hmm. the other three symphonies that uh, I recently recorded are symphonies that didn't necessarily start as symphonies. Um, One of them, which is called the Short Symphony, started as a ballet score um, to a vampire story. One of the symphonies is called the Dance Symphony, so that doesn't really lend itself Mm -hmm. um, to the same kind of gravitas. And uh, his first symphony was originally written for... um, an organ soloist with symphony orchestra, and then he reorchestrated it. So they all have sort of these hybrid histories, and I think that uh, doesn't help um, with their popularity. Do you yeah. know what I mean? People are yeah. confused about what they are. But to hear them now, can you hear him experimenting? Oh, absolutely. That's the most fantastic thing. It's almost, it's almost like reading a biography in a way. Just listening to yeah. these early symphonies, you hear. There's a also another element about uh, Copland. It's this very playful quality. You know, it's kind of a a, a gleam in his eye and just a, a little wink and a nod. You hear him combining instruments like um, the bassoon and the wood block and colenio in the strings, meaning you play with the wood. So there's a playful quality about it. And also in the in the slow music, there's a a yearning that I think later becomes uh, part of the American um, sound and the American spirit that he conveys. You know, this this pioneer, you just can see someone out on the plains after a long journey, you know, yearning for home. There's, there's something about it that feels, uh, as an American, feels American to me. Curious, when you perform Copeland, let's say in Bournemouth, mm-hmm. does the audience there walk out saying he's so quintessentially American, or is that is that something we've fallen into? You know, it's interesting because I found um, that in Europe and especially in the UK, people really they relate to I think the music, particularly as a a representation of the ideal of what America is about. It's not just about the landscape. There's another kind of quality to the music there's a quality of possibility mm-hmm. and immediacy 
sort of what you see is what you get. And I think this idea of possibility is perhaps even more quintessentially American than the idea of the big sky landscape. Maestro, thank you so much. My pleasure. Great to be here. Marin Elsop, musical director of the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra, and to hear more Aaron Copeland, for that matter, to hear more of Marin Elsop, go to our website, npr.org slash music. This is Weekend Edition. Hope you're having happy holidays. I'm Scott Simon.